You're listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Benton, culture consultant and founder of Liberty Mind, and I want to inspire people to create unique company cultures where our human potential can thrive. In this podcast, I talk to organizations and employees about the impact of company culture. Together, we can make it thrive. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. Over the past six months, we have seen enforced remote working transform many businesses' mindset on why we were working the nine to five anyway. Here in the UK, prior to COVID, only 5% of the UK workforce worked remotely. And despite the request of flexi time coming into the UK in 2014, one in three requests were turned down in 2019. It appears that pre-COVID, we were stuck in our ways, chained to a desk, and those who did gain flexible working were either at a managers or leaders. It was only for the chosen few. And let's be honest, nothing quite says I don't trust my team than a decline from flexible working. Post-COVID, the world is looking very different. And while I don't believe home working will become the new norm, I do believe that more businesses will adopt hybrid ways of working and hopefully, at long last, we can drop the outdated nine to five. Today's guest is here to do just that, inspire us to think differently about the way we work. In fact, he's adopted one of the most extreme forms of flexible working, results-only work environment, or row, as it's traditionally traditionally known. A results-only working environment is a strategy in which employees are paid for results and output rather than the number of hours worked. This focus on met or unmet results aims to allow the business to focus on fewer of the minute details of employees' daily routine. Today's guest is Simon Chaplin. Simon is the Managing Director of Greenstone's Accountants in Peterborough and the founder of the Accountants Mastermind. Back in 2009, Simon set the goal of extracting himself from his accountancy practice and allowing his team to work where and when they like. They have achieved that goal and he now only works one day a week at Greenstones with the same team, higher sales and more profit. He even gets 16 weeks holiday. Simon has done all of this at the same time as meeting and marrying his wife, Sally, having two children, Ben and Amy, running the London Marathon twice, cycling from Land's End to John O'Groats, and qualifying as a hypnotherapist. Simon's here today to inspire, challenge and support you to be courageous in the way you work with your team. Hi, Simon, and welcome to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. Introduce yourself and what you do to our audience. Hello, Lizzie. It's great to be with you today. Um, I've got two hats. Basically, I run an accountancy practice in Peterborough called Greenstones. Um, When I say run it, uh, I own that practice and I've now got uh, four team members that uh, look after that practice for me. And when I'm not in that accountancy practice, I also run a community of accountants called the Accountants Mastermind, where I facilitate mastermind groups for accountants to improve their practices. 
Wow, you're very busy then, Simon. I really appreciate you taking your time out today to talk to us. So in particular, what we're talking about today is results-only working environment because there at Greenstones, you have taken the radical, some might say, decision um, to implement results-only working. So in your own words, Simon, can you describe what results-only working is for those of those people that don't really know? So basically, I have allowed my team to work wherever they like, whenever they like. So each day, and we're in a strange time at the moment because of COVID and all the rest of it, but up until March of this year, uh, basically the team could work wherever they liked and whenever they liked, as long as the work got done. So we sat down many moons ago, and I will talk you through the process that we went through uh, if you're interested, and basically looked at the outputs the uh, productivity that the team members were producing. And I've said, basically, as long as they hit those outputs, um, then I don't care where they do that work or when they do that work, as long as that work gets done. And obviously, it's got to be done legally and within the values of the organization <laughs> and within certain parameters. But uh, as long as they are ethical and all that sort of stuff and they play by the game, I don't care where or when that work gets done, as long as the work gets done. Amazing. Now, to some people, that might sound like a totally utopian idea of flexible working because it is the ultimate form of flexibility. There's no limits. There's no restrictions. It is complete flexibility. So out of all of the models of flexible working that are out there currently, what made you decide to go with row, as we sort of call it? So if I, if I give you a bit of a, a background, when I bought Greenstones, the accountancy practice back in 2002, it was a, I will say stereotypical accountancy practice. It wasn't because it was better than that, but it was a pretty sort of stereotypical accountancy practice. We turned up at nine o'clock in the morning. We went home at half past five. We did timesheets and we billed by uh, the hour. I looked at that practice and decided that I didn't want it to look like that when I was finished. I wanted it to be different, more radical. And I set about on a journey of um, modernizing, if you like, uh, Greenstones, the accountancy practice, and ultimately uh, the profession to a degree. So first thing we did was get rid of timesheets. That was in 2004. And we set about looking at key performance indicators, budgets analysis, and all sorts of different uh, different things. And to a degree, we was very successful. I was then introduced to a book called Drive by Dan Pink. It's one of my all-time favorite books. And having gone through that book, he then uh, recommended why work sucks and what to do about it. The, the drive just, it resonated to my core uh, with regards to how uh, I would want to be treated as an individual, as a team member, as an employee, and also, therefore, how I would want my team to be treated um, uh, and how I would like to work with them. And then, as I say, I, I built on that with why work sucks and, and what to do about it. And it just it seemed to make common sense. There's an, an element of, well, what one of our purpose is to inspire, challenge and support business owners and their teams to be the very best they want to be. So the whole process I found to be inspiring. It, it was certainly challenging. There was a number of things, especially around trust that I had uh, a, a challenge with and obviously supporting from a, a team member point of view. So I read those books. Uh, we had a team away day. I think that was 2009, November 2009, where we sat down. Everybody had read the book. And we sat down 
and work through how we might implement that in our practice. And the the fundamental, I think, of it was a, a realization. Uh, it's going to sound stupid, but it was a, a realization that these people that worked for me and with me, they were grown ups, <laughs> and outside of work, they had babies and mortgages and cars and all the other stuff illnesses and whatnot that goes on whereas when they came into work we had systems and processes and rules and they've got to turn up at nine o'clock and they've got to record it like this and they go home at five and all that sort of stuff and the autonomy effectively disappeared as they came over the threshold and if i didn't and i'll use that word trust again if i didn't if i didn't trust the team act like grown-ups give them clarity in particular over what it was that I wanted them to achieve, then how on earth am I expecting them to do the best that they can do? Because I'm not giving them the clarity. I'm not giving them the uh, the, the processes that they need. And it just, it seemed the more and more I read the book, the more it, it just seemed to fit with my ethos around life. One of the things, one of the questions that they talk about is having a dinner hour. So on a Saturday and a Sunday, do you have a dinner hour? And at that point, we had a dinner hour at work. So they would stop work at one o'clock. They would go, uh, they'd start work at two o'clock. But on a Saturday and a Sunday, when they was at home, you don't stop for lunch. You just do whatever it is that you're, that you're doing. And it was that, this is what I need from you. This is what I would like you to produce in return for the salary that I'm paying you. And as long as you do that, if you work more efficiently, if you develop new ideas, you implement them, then that's to your benefit long-term pay rises and all the rest of it you get more time off short term so why would I not want to encourage people to be innovative and therefore more efficient um, rather than okay I'm going to train you you get better I'm going to give you more work (laughs) so why on earth would they want to be trained because they're just going to get more work it just it makes it makes no sense so uh, it's a bit of a waffly answer Lizzie I think but I'm quite (laughs) Uh, it just it fitted with me having read it it fitted with me and as I say I found it inspiring Uh, it was certainly challenging and I'll share with you if you if you want what those challenges were but it was supporting both to me and to uh, the team absolutely I mean you are preaching to the converted here Simon I must say if we could just clone you that would be amazing (laughs) (laughs) it's so and I think one of the things that I I really want to actually pick your brains about is do you think that especially when you've talked about trust a lot as well because that is a, a big big pillar I talk about when we're when I discuss flexible working with any directors or any business owners and I say it really comes down to trust Um, We add so much um, constraints and restrictions into company cultures because we ultimately don't trust 2% of the people that don't work there when actually, why have we got those people there in the first place? There's so many rules and restrictions. But I think it also comes down to your sometimes personal values. So like you've mentioned, Simon, about reading those books and, and thinking, well, this is how I want to be treated as an employer and an employee this is how I want my team to be to feel when they come to work. Do you think there's sometimes a gap between having that incentive and initiative to think about the future of work and how work should be um, with people's personal values and perhaps the, the kind of the stereotypes we've got into with boss versus team kind of situation? Yeah, very, very much so. There's a a them and us and 
yeah, it's it's very easy to go down the pub if you're allowed to go down the pub. But you get you go down the pub and you you want something to moan about, so you moan about your team and the t- team moan about the boss. And there's this attitude about uh, nothing unites a, a team like a common enemy. And very often the boss thinks that they need to be the common enemy in order to unite that team. But the the, the reality of it is is it's something we've grown up with, if you like, as a as a as leaders, we was mistrusted uh, mm. as we was developing. Um, and again, I go back to that. You, you said 2%. I think it is perhaps there are 5%. So you you create rules to create 5% of the workforce or to, to manage 5% of the workforce. And you effectively upset the other 95% because of the, of the 5% that you're managing, because ultimately you're not brave enough in, in order to have that conversation with the five percent that are not doing what they need to do and ultimately that again comes back to trust because you don't trust them to react in a positive way you don't trust yourself uh, to have that conversation and and give them the 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 clarity so another great book five dysfunctions of a team by patrick lencioni and again that was another one of these pivotal moments where i read the book and if you don't have trust then you can't have uh, conflict and if you can't have conflict you can't have commitment and it, it, it runs through it's like another topic and i know i'm, I'm bouncing all over the place but another a topic is is i'll ask very often i'll ask business owners and other accountants what is it that you want to achieve with your practice or with your business and, and very often they give you a blank look and they don't know what it is now i know secretly they do they have everybody in that entrepreneurial position, say everybody, the majority of people in that entrepreneurial position has a desire, have some goals, but they're too embarrassed to share it because when they was growing up, they'd say that they wanted to be a ballerina or an astronaut or a football player. And some helpful auntie or uncle would say, but well, you can't do that. You need to be an accountant or a doctor or whatever it is. So people get out of that habit through embarrassment. And if you're not prepared to share what it is that you want to achieve, even with yourself, but if you, if you can't do it with your your loved ones and ultimately your team, how on earth do you expect your team to make decisions based on where it is that you want to go? You can't you can't trust them to do it, and if they can't make decisions, that leaves you as the owner of the business being the only person that can make a decision, and then that gives you the entitlement to say, well, nobody knows what they're doing, nobody's as good as me, I have to make all these decisions, I can't delegate it to other people, and you can accept all this pressure and burden purely because you're not, I want to say, courageous enough, brave enough to um, sort of, Stick your neck out a little bit, if you like, uh, and to give uh, and to create a community where uh, people want to carry people along. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you on that, Simon. I really do. I think, um, I mean, Brené Brown says it really well in some of the content that she puts out in her books and her talks, you know, that actually as a leader now more than anything, we need vulnerability. We need to take more risks and we need to trust and we need to, you know, lead by example. And I think that's exactly it, isn't it? As a, as a leader, you do need to put, put a bit of risk out there and, and give things a go. <laughs> I very much so. And I can think, I mean, again, conversations that I have, I can, I can come back to myself. So once upon a time, um, the financial results of the business uh, were under lock and key. There, there was a cupboard over in the far corner uh, and they was locked away. I did all the bookkeeping. I did all the bank reconciliations. I was the only one that knew how much money there was in the bank because I didn't trust people not to judge me based on the results that we were getting as an, as an organization. And 
I remember the day very well where I started to share that information with the team and expected um, a backlash uh, that never materialized because they understood I think that I was being vulnerable. There was an element of trust there. And then because I trusted them more, they then trusted me more and we grew together. There's this thing, and again, it's very pertinent at the moment around redundancies. So I know as the employer, I am not going to make myself redundant. I am in complete, should be in complete control of my uh, situation. I should have all the information that's available to me. Whereas the team members, they're coming to work at the moment. And even though I'm saying, I'm not going to make you redundant, I'm not going to make you redundant, they don't really know whether you're telling them the truth. They don't have all of the information that you've got. And therefore, they have to trust you in that situation more than you have to trust them because you've got the information. So it just it, it continually builds. And a, another very brief story, uh, back in respect 10 years ago now, uh, as we started to develop, the practice become more profitable. I started to earn more money than I ever thought I would earn. And uh, I went to buy a house. And there was a little bit of gossip and chit-chat within the, the office about it. Um, and then in one of the weekly team meetings, uh, one of the team members asked me if the new house had got a swimming pool. And I, I don't know, well, I do know why now, but <laughs> in the moment I said no. So I lied to the team. One of the five values that we have is around honesty and being honest. And I said, no, I haven't through embarrassment, judgment, seeking approval. And uh, I left, walked out of the meeting or left the meeting, spent the rest of the day mulling over what I'd done, got home, slept on it. And then the following morning, I had to reconvene that meeting and apologize to the person that asked me the question and share that the new house had, in fact, got a swimming pool. <laughs> Now, the irony of that situation is they'd all been on right move or whatever it was back then, and they knew that the house had a swimming pool. They was only asking for the confirmation. But the fact that I'd lied and then gone away, thought about it, and then come back and demonstrated the values, I mean, that story still gets talked about 10 years on. It gives permission for other people to make mistakes and ultimately be vulnerable and share when they... Uh, need the support, I suppose, of other people and to, again, I'll go back to that word, inspire um, or challenge them uh, to be the best that they want to be. Absolutely. What a great story, Simon. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think there's so much to learn from those examples. And like you say, it's even the smallest the smallest, the smallest incident that can happen that can then just turn that that trust instantly. It can be. It takes so long to build up, but it can be so quickly torn back down. Yeah, you know, my my precept, and I we have I have debates with my wife about this. Is I, I tend to trust people until. Um, they do something to prove otherwise, uh, whereas my wife tends to mistrust people <laughs> until the trust has uh, until the trust has built up. Now, people will say, again, I have this levied at me through the team and to a to a degree within the community that I am too easygoing, I am too trusting, I'm too relaxed about uh, the situation and the way people are acting and working. But I always. And I go back to, I've used this word once already, that volunteering, my, my best people are volunteers and every single day they turn up and they volunteer to work for Greenstones. Now, they are well paid, don't get me wrong, but because they're as good as what they are, they could be well paid anywhere. So they're actually volunteering to come to work uh, for Greenstones. 
And as we look at that and the way I look at that and the community that we've got, as I say, the community that we've got, it just uh, say fills me with pride is probably not the right phrase but you need you need to be doing something in this day and age in order to have the best people you need to be doing something other than the uh, authoritarian dictatorial uh, open the door at past eight go home at five o'clock and if that means that outside it looks a little bit uh, relaxed um, or uh, inconducive to work then uh, so be it absolutely <laughs> So it sounds like, I suppose to people maybe listening, they might be thinking, well, this sounds great. You know, people are going to be happy. It sounds really relaxed. Sounds like it's going to be really successful. But were there any teething troubles when you first started this, Simon? Was there any kind of bumps in the road that made you think, oh, is this going to work? Yeah, there's there's several. And as much as it, it sounds radical, it's not, it doesn't end up being as radical as what it initially sounds. So just to give you a flavor for it although though they people can work up they can turn up and they can work wherever they like whenever they like and on a monday morning or even on a tuesday afternoon i don't know who's in the office and who's not in the office who's not working and who is working the the irony of it is is after the first sort of two or three months people running around thinking oh this is great i'm going to the cinema on a tuesday or i'm going shopping on a wednesday morning people are creatures of habit so Uh, The school's still open at the same time. The gyms are open and people get into a routine. So I can second guess what time certain people are going to turn up in the morning and what time they're going to go home. So although it is this massive thing or appears to be this massive thing, the reality of it is is people just get back into the routine. Mm. What challenges have we had? Well, when we first started, we had uh, KPIs. And again, it's a story that I share uh, until we actually sat down, so if, if you've got no time boundaries, if a team member's productivity, if their job depends on that productivity, all of a sudden they have an interest in making sure that the targets, the key performance indicators that they are helping set are right. Because if they're not right and they don't meet them, then they're going to get fired. So all of a sudden, the team member had the vested interest in the KPIs as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, I'll build this or I'll do that. All of a sudden, they they had some skin in the game. The flip side of it, the other way around, is as a business owner, I knew that if the KPIs weren't right, then the business would fail. So all of a sudden, the emotional energy around those numbers and what those targets needed to be, it got a whole lot more serious than rocking up at a six-monthly appraisal or a quarterly appraisal or whatever it was and having a nice chat about what numbers it was that I wanted the team members to, to meet. So there was a seriousness around that um, and a, a professionalism. I wanna, I'm hesitating to use that word because I think I'm professional, but the, the, the level of commitment went up because of what depended on it. Now, we set the targets, people come and go, and it all goes mad for a few months, and then ultimately people settle settle back into a routine. However, you still have people that, whether or not you, you measure it daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, you still have that pressure. So it's incredibly easy for a team member to think, okay, well, it's October. I've not got to do X until the 31st of October. So this week I'm going to have a bit of a chillax. I'm going to watch a bit of bargain hunt or whatever it is. I'm going to do a bit of decorating. I'm going to play with the kids. And as it gets closer to the 31st of October to the deadline, then the pressure mounts. So 
you need to be as an employer you need to be very conscious and i know over the years i've learned that there are certain individuals that like that pressure there are certain individuals that don't and they need a bit of coaching a bit of counseling uh, before they get themselves into that situation so there's a couple of things you can get the numbers wrong if you get the numbers wrong then you need to change them quickly and make sure that they are the right numbers as as best right as they can be because i don't think you'll ever get them exactly right but the best right they can be and then you need to be very sensitive as as a, an employer as a coach as to what demands the individuals the team members are putting on themselves in order to to hit their numbers because i mean outside of those numbers it's all again it's all very well saying uh, you can work wherever you like, whenever you like, as long as the work gets done. Well, there will be occasions when you've got a family member that's not very well or a cat that's not very well or you're not very well or a situation that's outside of that person's control. COVID is a classic. <laughs> all of a sudden, we was all at home with kids. Well, you, you can't expect team members to hit the same numbers in April with kids at home running around pulling here and all the rest of it as what they did do in February. Uh, so you have to... as, as as much as it sounds completely objective, there is still an amount of subjective subjectivity to it that, that you can never get away from. And then the, the, the last one, and this is again a, a personal one for, for Simon, um, is holding people to account. So uh, again, like lots of people, I'm not a massive fan of conflict. I don't like telling people off. Um, I don't like arguing with people. Generally speaking, I like to get on with people. Whereas Within this process, if people aren't producing what it is that they need to produce, what it is that they've agreed they're going to do, somebody, i.e. me, needs to hold them accountable. Otherwise, everybody else looks at it and goes, well, he's not doing it and therefore I'm not going to do it. So I had to step up and develop as a manager, as a leader and have those uncomfortable conversations. And over the years, I've got better at it. I'm not saying that I'm anywhere really comfortable with it or even an expert at it but um, I'm certainly better at it now than what I was. Wow that is such a fantastic insight Simon thank you so much for sharing those because I think there is so much knowledge to be had from from this experience that that you're sort of that you've gone through and and how you've adapted because like I say often when people look at adopting a flexible working model they don't look at you know well they're they're called soft skills but let's be honest they're the hardest skills that we need to you know self-awareness and (laughs) vulnerability and trust these are actually hard skills we all need to learn not soft skills but actually often it's those areas that really come up when you're when you when you wade into these flexible working models and you kind of pull everything out and and all the grudge that comes up is all this self-awareness you know people's egos well hang on a minute this person came in at this time and I've come in at this time I mean did you have any of that peer-to-peer conflict that sometimes arises with complete flexibility de- de- definitely so uh, there is uh fundamentally people going home uh, early uh, in speech marks yeah. you have situations where uh, somebody helps somebody uh, which means that they have then got behind so and then that person disappears off and it's like well I'll just sat there for half an hour helping you you've not helped me back um, all of those conversations are for, for me th- those conversations were happening anyway um, they were just happening in the photocopier room, in the toilet, in the yeah. kitchen or wherever it was. And it was called gossip back in yeah. the day. Whereas now they're a bit, they're more overt about it because um, it, it's affecting their jobs basically. And 
I, I would much rather have the overt conflict. Sometimes I'm gonna, it's going to sound like there's a stand-up argument for the rest <laughs> of it. There has occasionally been stand-up arguments, stand-up debates. But for me, it's a much better, healthier debate if people are having it together rather than covertly in the pub after they've gone home. And the, the ego question is a, is, a, is a fundamental one, Lizzie, and you reminded me of a story. So back back when we started this process um we made all meetings voluntary so if you didn't want to come to a meeting you didn't have to uh, i couldn't i couldn't force people to come to a meeting and then at the end of the month say you've not hit your targets why haven't you hit your targets and then them turn around and say well you made me just you made me go to that boring meeting for 2 hours so all meetings had to become voluntary and we used to have a weekly team meeting at half past 12 on a wednesday we all used to traipse into the boardroom we'd talk for half an hour and then uh, we'd all go and get on with the work we'd talk about things like new customers that we're taking on customers that we'd lost uh, how fast the kettle boiled and all that sort of usual stuff that uh, lots of people have in businesses and the first time i made it voluntary uh, i stood i went and stood in the boardroom at half past 12 on the wednesday as normal and one person joined me and uh, okay so i opened the door and said is anybody else coming and the answer was you did you said these meetings were voluntary didn't you uh, yes i did uh, are you coming uh, no uh, why are you not coming well we don't learn anything all you do is you tell us all the stuff that we already know we work in this business during the course of the week we know what's going on and without being cheeky about it Simon to a degree we probably know more about what's going on than what you do so why why would we do that and then it was like okay, so what would you want to talk about in a meeting? And somebody at the back of the room shouted out, tell us when you're going to do the Christmas party because last year's was rubbish. <laughs> and that, I still I still remember standing there and my, the ego, my inability to, I'm going to say as I'm physically making people, it's like a control thing yeah. as an employer, as a boss. And it's like, okay, I want you to do this and I want you to sit there and do this in this meeting. And I'd given that up. And that did take, and it, it did take quite a bit of reconciling that I couldn't, I'd lost that power in inverted commas. But the the irony of it was is I'd never had that power anyway because they was coming into the meeting and they was just, it was just treating it as half an hour off. They was just disengaged and they wasn't involved in the conversation. And the other thing as a, as a financial person that really rattles my cage is I've got 20 people in that room for half an hour a week. So that was 10 hours a week of productive time that was being lost. So over 5,000 hours a year, uh, was it 5,000 hours, 500 hours, whatever many hours a year it was of wasted man hours, um, which just, again, with the benefit of hindsight and looking back, it was a, a ridiculous exercise that I think lots of businesses do because they've read it in the book, they've watched a webinar, <laughs> the, the boss used to do it in the old place or whatever it was, and they don't challenge the uh, accepted norms. Absolutely. Oh, I love that story so much. <laughs> and I'm so glad you shared that with us because, oh my goodness, it's so hard. And I think that's one of the things when, when people are looking at these flexible working, I think especially right now as well, you know, people can't breathe down each other's backs in an office. So that, that, that sort of perception of power that we have when we're 
managing people in an office is is disappears and that's a real struggle for some people so micromanaging takes on a whole new level at the moment um so I'm so glad you brought that up yeah but it, it boils down when you talk and again I because I'm very conscious of myself it, it boils down to their their identity the, yeah. the managers the business owners identity and ultimately their self-esteem so I am identified with Greenstones. So what do you do? I own Greenstones. Is Greenstones part of my identity or is it just serving a purpose at the moment uh, in order to help the customers pay my mortgage and pay the mortgages of the team members? Now, as soon as I become uh, in pride around the ownership of that building, then my judgment then becomes impaired because I don't want to lose what I've got. Um, And then you start clinging on to stuff and holding on to it because you're in fear of looking stupid again seeking the approval and losing out to to other competitors and all the rest of it and that's just a never-ending road to misery um, and all the rest of it that goes along with it anyway I won't go down that (laughs) (laughs) oh I love that so since you've I mean how long now have you been practicing row in your organization well they they started we had the the team away day i think was november 2009 it was certainly in 2009 at some point and they basically we had had 18 people in the room six of them volunteered to trial it and we said that we would trial it for six months and within two or three months of the trial starting the majority of other people wanted to join so certainly early 2010 mid 2010 uh, everybody here was on row if they wanted to be. And there's, there's only a couple of people here um, that aren't on row uh, for childcare. And it's a bit more difficult with part-time people if they've got kids at home during the day and, and various other different means. So it's, it, it suits the majority of people, but doesn't suit all of them. And, and as I say, that we've been doing that for the last uh, for the last 10 years now. Wow, that's incredible. So what have you noticed since adopting row about your company culture has there been a a change and a shift go on it's it's definitely more open it's definitely more conducive it's uh a more i would like to say a more uh productive environment um sometimes i could put forward an argument that it's more political uh but then i I flip that around and go well these conversations were as i say earlier that these conversations were happening in the pub um they're not now they're happening in the office, it's just the same conversation. It's just a different location. If if I think about me personally, then that micromanagement that you was talking about, and another story I share all the time was once where this office is, I have to drive by the office to get into the car park. And I know I used to drive by the office. I used to look through the window and there would be two or three people having a chat. And by the time I drove around the corner, parked the car and got into the office, everybody would be sat there beavering away. Well, I know that they weren't doing that literally 30 seconds ago, and they know that I know that they weren't doing that, but we have this facade that that was what actually, that that, that was what actually happened. Now, when we uh, started with Roe, because it's their time when they're having a chat, and as long as they hit their numbers, I don't mind, it changed. So I can walk into the office and I can have a conversation in that uh, in that environment and ultimately what you learn is you get you get the vulnerability again you get close to people you you learn about what's going on in their lives and what they're doing and how uh, you can then serve them better so an, another example that i use a lot um is around um some G- ghd hair straighteners 
So we had a we had a competition, and uh, one of the team members uh, won the competition. Now, traditionally, what we'd done is I'd just I'd I'd give them fifty quid uh, cash through the payroll, uh, so they'd have to pay the tax on it, and they get the fifty ca- uh, fifty quid. Uh, net but invariably what happens with that is just a monetary figure it goes into the bank account and it's never separated now i remember walking into the office and and this team member was talking about their hair straighteners had gone wrong had broken so uh, i went straight onto amazon i bought a set of hair straighteners and those hair straighteners was given to the to the team member now i know that team member still got those hair straighteners because they talk about the day that i gave them the hair straighteners. Nobody oh. ever talks about the day that I gave them the 50 quid. <laughs> I wouldn't have heard that necessarily. I wouldn't have heard that if we wasn't operating under this system. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's such a such a great story, Simon. Honestly, it's amazing that you've been doing it for 10 years because, I mean, if we look at where we are right now, pre-COVID, let's be honest, um, you know, I mean, it, it still is um, a legal requirement that you have to ask for flexible working. You have to request it from your employer. Um, remote or flexible working generally was sort of divvied out to the lu- the lucky few um, who are often mostly managers. Um, then we've got sort of taken into this absolute whirlwind that is COVID and everybody's had to go through enforced remote working. So it's kind of turned everything on its head. Um, which I think now is making more people realise what's actually possible. Yeah, fundamentally, it's it's remarkable. Some of the conversations I'm having, especially uh, when they said, right, on the 5th of August or whatever it was, you could go back into the office if you wanted to. And people were saying, well, do you know what? My team, they've been more productive at home. Uh, but I'm going to make them come into the office. Why? So I know what they're doing. But what, why does it matter what they're doing as long as they're doing more? Well, I know that they weren't starting work at nine o'clock. Okay. Does that matter? Well, I want to I want to think that they're working at nine o'clock. Or um, they was on this Zoom meeting one day and I'm sure they was in the pyjamas. Uh, did they speak? To, does it matter? Does it really, truthfully, does it matter if they weren't if they weren't representing the company with customers and that's all taken um, as given, but that, that rush to get people back again, I think it goes to the control uh, aspect, but it was a, for me, it was a, it was a really interesting experiment where people had to do it. And in the majority of cases, it was successful. There was also, and you will have seen this as well, Lizzie, when you talk to business owners, there was also a hardcore of, of business owners that, didn't want to do it full stop end of story and therefore didn't send their team home and for me that was a it it, it challenges me on all sorts of level around safety what it's saying to your team about what's the most important thing in their lives it's the business that's the most important thing not you or your families or even my families Um, and I know uh, again having spoken to lots of team members from other accountancy practices in, those, in that situation that they want out now and they're, they're looking it's almost like it's a brand new dawn and people are getting excited about the possibilities and ways that we might work it's really simple things like I know people talk about generation x and y and new baby boomers or whatever it is and the fact that they've never known a world without facebook and we've got people in this organization that have never known a world without Facebook. It's like it's attached to them. And I, I know practices that make make people put their phones in lockers so they can't look at their phone during the course of the day. Well, they're not present, 
what they're doing is they're sitting there thinking, I wonder what's going on on my phone in my locker. They're no, they're no more productive with the phone in the locker than what they are with it on the desk. It's just, it makes absolutely no sense to me uh, whatsoever. But there you go. Sorry, another soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simon, I could literally talk to you for hours. Um, but honestly, you have given so much insight. If you could give three top things, uh, top pieces of advice to other businesses considering row what would you say to them Uh, be courageous number one um and set about the journey even if it's just buying drive by damping and having a read and and having a think about it Um, definitely collaborate with the team so don't uh stand on high and dictate that this is the way that that we're going to work um Sit down with a team and and do it collaboratively, if that's a word. I can't say that word. Um, And then the other one is decide where you're going to go. So if you think about business in its truest sense is very, very simple. All all you need to do is is work out where it is that you want to go and then be brave enough to share that. And then you work out where you are now. Uh, So what assets, what resources you've got. And then with the resources you've got, you then work out where it is or how you're going to get to where it is that you want to go. And if if you share with the team where your B is and you give them the information, the financials and whatnot of where they are now, then they are intelligent people. And together you can work out as a team how you're going to get from A to B. And I know I've probably, I've probably shared six or seven things there, but fundamentally... Uh, let go of the ego, be courageous, have conversations, trusted conversations with your team and share the information in order for them to help you rather than you have to herd them like uh, cats or sheepdogs or whatever it is into a pen that you think is the right place for them to be because that's the societal norm uh, at the moment. Absolutely. Fantastic words of wisdom there, Simon. They are brilliant. And I think you will have, you certainly inspire me. So I think you're certainly going to inspire everybody else to take Roe by the horns and give it a go. Um, But anybody else that wants to find Simon, I will drop all of his details in the show notes. So make sure you connect up with him and also just drop him a message if you've watched, listened to this episode and um, let him know. But thank you so much, Simon, for your time today. You're very welcome. And as I said, and I, I'm very uh, passionate about this topic and I will give my time freely to anybody that's serious about going on that journey because it's just, for me, it's a fantastic thing. So if there's anybody listening that's thinking, oh, I wonder how that works or don't you have to do this in your contract of employment or how does that work with you or whatever, uh, if you hook up with LinkedIn, email, Facebook or whatever it is, I will gladly uh, help you uh, to the best of my ability if you would like to take that journey. Amazing. Thank you so much, Simon. That is awesome. You've been listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast with me, your host, Lizzie Benton. If you've enjoyed listening and want to keep up with all things culture, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to welcoming you back next week.